Welcome to episode 153 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, author of What, When, Why, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Jen Stevens, author of Delay, Don't Deny, Living an Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and jenstevens.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice or treatment. So, pour yourself a cup of black coffee, a mug of tea, or even a glass of wine, (laughs) if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi friends, an incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof Coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, (laughs) drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof Coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof Coffee, and it is called Danger Coffee, and friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash Danger Coffee. 
and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash danger coffee with the coupon code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10 year decade bulletproof coffee habit. But sometimes you just gotta upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 153 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi, everybody. How are you today, Jen? I am great. It's a 
sunny day. And even though it's a little chilly, I'm really enjoying the sun. How about you? Is it sunny there? Yes. And I'm hoping it gets cold again. (laughs) I'm ready for spring. So (sighs) spring, spring, please come spring. Not so much. So what's new with you? Last night, I felt like I was in college. Oh, really? Why is that? Because the fire alarm kept going off. At your apartment complex? Mm-hmm. Like in the middle of the night? Mm-hmm. It was really miserable. It's so fascinating, though, because you realize that how you wake up, you know how you hear something and then you wake up and you already heard it? I'm always fascinated by that. Like you heard it while you were sleeping, but you didn't realize... Yeah, I know what you mean. It's like they say our perception of reality is like our reaction to something that we already, like we think we're experiencing it right now, but actually it's already happened. And it's like the story we tell about what just happened. It's like never actually experiencing it right then, which is kind of shocking. Yeah, I think the whole while we're sleeping and like partially asleep, but then also like aware that we're dreaming, but aware of what's happening and say, oh, that's real. Oh, that's not. That's always fascinating to me. Oh, yeah, it is fascinating. And I actually interviewed a sleep specialist really recently on my other podcast. And she was saying even when we're asleep, part of our brain is still awake. And so like certain noises will wake us up and other noises won't. And they could be the same loudness, but it's because our brain is like tuned to wake up to certain ones. It's really fascinating. Like moms will wake up to crying babies. Right. Oh, yeah. But then you won't won't for other things. That's true. Very true. But it obviously felt like college because in college college students are pulling fire alarms all the time. We did not have that happen at my college. Thumbs up, Wake Forest. I don't remember a fire alarm ever going off in the middle of the night. Are you serious? Yes. That was like story of my life in college. (laughs) I don't think it ever happened one time. Oh no. I even have my setup. Like when the fire alarm goes off, it's like I would get my blankets and I would just go to my car and sleep. Oh gosh. Yeah. We didn't have that. We were advanced students at Wake Forest. We didn't. (laughs) I don't know why, but nobody did it. We were advanced, but we were also, I don't know, USC was smart, intelligent, but also party friendly at the same time. So, anything else new with you? No, not a thing. (laughs) That's exciting, right? Nothing's new. Yeah, really it isn't. We're just cruising along and Things are going great, but nothing new other than I, it was the sun. I mean, that really is new. The sun was new because it's been like the rainiest winter that we've had in so long. They did lay tile floor in my bathroom model on Friday, so that was exciting. We're getting there. I think the vanity's coming in this week. so It's very exciting. Yep. So wallpaper will be going in soon. I will say wallpaper installers are very finicky about wall prep. Wait, now we're talking about wallpaper. I know, but you asked what was new. (laughs) And so we're about to have some intensive wall prep going on. But other than that, my life is just the same. Awesome. I think I decided I want to move to Aspen, but apparently the trailer parks start at 500,000. So what? Oh, wow. Yeah, that would be a no. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's a no. My family's there right now for my dad's birthday because it's his leap year birthday. Oh, okay. Is he a February 29th? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's fun. I always think about that every time we have a leap year. I think about everyone born on that day. That's my dad. I love that. Yay. I got him one of those phone soap things that I'm obsessed with. Did I tell you about that? The like little UV bed for your phone. But you didn't go out there with them? No. 
too much right now, but I'm living vicariously. We did FaceTime. Well, that's good. And um, so they are having fun for sure. Shall we jump into everything for today? Yes, let's get started. All right. So to start things off, we have a question from Sarah and the subject is IF schedule weight loss to maintenance. Sarah says, hi, Melgen. That's your buddy name. I love that, by the way. Thank you, Sarah. Melgen. Like they'll put, you know, they'll put people together. (laughs) I love it. Melgen. When I was a server at one point, I had a friend named Cameron. So when we would be a team together, we called it Camel because it was Cam and Mel. Hi, Melgen. I'm early days in listening to the podcast and in my first month of Real and Clean IF. So far, I felt great and already have some space in my clothes. I know you've answered questions about both the topics in my subject line, but currently I've had a window of one to three hours each day for eating. I fasted at least 21 hours every day and done a couple 36 and 48 hour fasts. I have two sizes because weight is a lie, right? That I'd like to lose. When I get to maintenance, I like to possibly have a looser, longer window, but still keeping the one meal a day in the light of wanting to lose and keep it off. Should I just suck it up and take longer to lose and move to a five-hour window now or switch up to that after I'm a little more happy with my size? I don't want to gain back once I've dropped though. Or should I switch to a longer window now and do a more regular 36 to 48 hour fast, which it seems there is conflicting info on if these are even actually more beneficial for weight loss or might now even do anything more than a one meal a day approach. Thank you so much for all the time you've put into learning and sharing so much. I'm an auditory learner. Thank you, Jen, for doing a podcast and Melanie for getting us. I like that. (laughs) Yeah, I do too. She said, like I said, currently I'm early in the podcast. So if you do answer this, I'd love a heads up so I can skip ahead. Thanks gals. All right. Well, yeah, I'm really happy to answer this. And I don't think that, I'm not sure I very specifically mentioned this here in the podcast. I may have. We say a lot of things. (laughs) By the time you add up, you know, we've done 153 episodes, plus I've recorded 88 episodes of my other podcast. So add all that up, plus all the time I spend typing things out in the Facebook groups. And is it any wonder that probably Melanie and I have forgotten where we've said things? Would that be true for you, Melanie? Yes. It does stress me out because I feel like I remembered everything of everything that I said. And then I feel like I stopped remembering things I said. It's just too much. Yeah, there's so much. It's all in there. The rest is falling out. So anyway, Sarah, I'm not sure if I've ever specifically talked about it on this podcast. I may have. But I want to bring up a very important concept with alternate daily fasting or the up and down day approach. Because I see that you're doing 36 to 48 hour fasts in there. But you then said that you're having a window of one to three hours each day for eating. Now, I do a much better job explaining this in my new book, Fast, Feast, Repeat, which is currently available for pre-order. So you'll have to wait till June to read it. But I would love everyone to go ahead and pre-order it because pre-orders help so much. So look for Fast, Feast, Repeat wherever you buy books. But in the up and down day chapter of Fast, Feast, Repeat, I'm very, very clear based on what we know about the research of alternate daily fasting protocols, the balance of the up day and the down day together are super key. So if you're doing a longer fast, like let's say 36 to 42 hours, let's cap it at 42 right there. Then you want to make sure to have an up day. 
When they did the research, now I know I've said this, when they did the research on alternate daily fasting with the the pattern where you're fasting one day and not fasting the next, they didn't have any eating windows on the updates. They just said, this day you fast, this day you don't. So people were eating more in a typical three meal a day pattern on the updates. So for that reason, we do not have research on what happens if you do, you know, like an alternate day of fasting and then have one meal and then fasting and then have one meal. So we don't know what that would do long term. We do know that you want to be cautious of overdoing the fasting because even though we know that fasting is protective of metabolic rate overall, there does come a point where your body is going to respond and feel overly stressed out. You're doing too much. Now, what is that point? Well, it's different for everybody. So if you're doing 36 hour fasts to 42 hour fasts, I want you to have a true up day after that where you have at least two meals, maybe even three. You don't need to think about it as a day where you're restricting, but definitely don't do like a 48 hour fast, then have one meal, then another 48 hour fast, then another meal. We don't have any research on that type of protocol at all. We do know that when the body perceives that we're over restricting, it will slow metabolic rate. So just keep that in mind. And if you want to do an up and down day pattern, think about it as something between 36.12 and 42.6. When you start getting beyond that, you're moving into more extended fasting territory. So just keep that in mind as well. So which to do? You know, you want to know what schedule works best for you for weight loss so that you can go ahead and get to maintenance I think you're going to have to just experiment with that and see for yourself. You know, I have done both ways. I've done daily eating window. I've done alternate daily fasting. You know, I think I lost the quickest when I was doing the daily eating window approach with a a shorter eating window, but also being very careful to choose real foods in my eating window. That was when I was losing about two pounds a week. That might not be true for you. Maybe you will find that you lose weight more quickly with an alternate daily fasting protocol, in which case you could just think of it as 36-12. Fast for 36, have a 12-hour eating window. Fast for 36, have a 12-hour eating window. The key is on your up days, whether your window is 6 hours, 8 hours, 12 hours, you want to eat until you're satisfied. Always pay attention to your body, and if you start feeling the urge to binge, or if you start feeling like you're overdoing the fasting, or you start dreading the longer fasts, switch it up. Listen to your body, and anything that doesn't feel right needs to be switched up. What do you think about that, Melanie? Yeah, I'm really glad that you addressed the ADF stuff. I do know I've talked about this concept before, but I will bring it up again because I think it speaks to a question that a lot of people do have, which is basically the idea of, you know, should you be more intense, more strict at the beginning to get faster results? Or is it better to go a little bit slower and be a little bit easier with the process? I mean, would you agree that's kind of like the general question? Yeah, I think so. And I'm not going to say that it's wrong to, to go quickly because I tell the story of how I wanted to get into my goal clothes by summer. So that was when I tightened up had a shorter window, and changed what I was eating to be whole foods, no processed foods, and I delayed wine. I lost the weight quickly. Then I got to my goal, and I could relax and find the window that felt right for me. So I'm not against, you know, if you can find a way that feels great and it's working really well, 
nothing wrong with that. I just want to put that out there. Yeah, exactly. And I think, and this is what I have spoken about before, but I think it depends what type of person you are and how you respond to like what you need to see to keep you motivated and to keep you happy with the process. And I think there are different types of people that respond to things differently. The study I've talked about before that I found most fascinating was that on the short term, it was looking at comparing like very restrictive diets that created rapid fat loss to less strict diets that also created fat loss and the short-term and long-term effects of that. And the takeaway that I found so fascinating and I feel like really just paints, in my opinion, a very clear picture of what often goes on here was that the intense restriction that resulted in very fast weight loss, it actually had higher compliance rates in the short term. I've read that study. I, the one that you're talking about, I remember reading that years ago. In the, yeah, and the key is in the short term, but not the long term. So basically what this indicates and what they found was that people do well on restrictive diets if it's short term because you see the results. It's motivating, right? You're motivating, so you stay with it. Compared to a short term, less restrictive diet, you might not see as many results, so you might not stick with it short term, you know, like it might not pan out. However, on the flip side, long-term wise, people are not likely to stick to restrictive diets and they're more likely to stick to the less restrictive diets. So the takeaway I take from this is I think depending on what type of person you are, it can possibly be beneficial to not think that it has to be one or the other. So don't think like, oh, I am going to be really restrictive until I reach the goal and then I'll maintain the alternative option being, oh, I'll be, you know, I won't be as restrictive until I hit goal and then I'll maintain. You could kind of blend them together <laughs> and say, I'll be restrictive for a short amount of time and then I'll move to a broader window, regardless of when I hit quote maintenance. I'm not saying you have to do this, but in this like way of approaching it, it wouldn't be like you're doing one or the other until maintenance. You would literally just be doing a system where you're okay with being more quote restrictive or, you know, being more intense because the danger comes in. If you say I'm going to be more intense and if it's not supportive long-term, the danger can come in. If you say, I'm going to do this until I hit a certain thing, because then it might not be really sustainable, like in your life to bring you happily to that maintenance point when maybe you could get there by being more intense, being more restrictive, but then not being as restrictive and still getting to maintenance or doing like, for example, people might cycle in more restrictive periods and then more less restrictive and then more restrictive and then more and then less restrictive. I think that the danger I think comes in when people think, Oh, I'm going to be more intense until I hit this number because then if that doesn't sustain them to that point, they don't have anything else to turn to and it can lead to like cycling and yo-yoing and, yeah. So similar to what Jim was saying, based on your weight and your goals and your adequate nutrition, and everything, I don't think it, there's anything wrong with like, you know, trying to get results faster if you're doing it in a concentrated way that's paying attention to your nutritional status, to your goals, to your overall health and well-being. I think it's better to be like have a planned period of like supportive, quote, more restrictive time compared to this perpetual culture of constant, like, I'm just going to diet forever. I think that's 
not healthy. Well, I, w- I want to throw one thing out there, you know, because when you were talking about whether you felt restricted, like you were talking about the people who were really restricting and losing quickly, the the key I want to point out to what I, I did during the period of time when I was losing two pounds a week at the very end and getting to my initial goal, I did not feel restricted. And that I think is super important because I was delaying alcohol. I also delayed ultra processed foods, but I ate real foods to satiety every day. I never felt like I was depriving myself of being full and satisfied. I was not depriving myself of carbs. I wasn't depriving myself of fat. I was eating food that was delicious. It was real food. It satisfied me. And my weight was doing <laughs> was was coming off quickly. It was kind of like the magic formula for my body: a window of one to two hours, real food, eating until satisfied, and and the weight just fell right off. I also think it's interesting that that was towards the end, and I do think that my body was just really adjusted well at that point. That's another thing to keep in mind because we we talk about as your body adjusts to fat burning it's able to burn the fat better. Does that make sense to explain myself well, Melanie? Yeah, no, I'm actually, I'm really glad you brought that up because that was my second caveat to throw a slight wrench in the whole thing. Because after saying, you know, positing that it is okay to have a more restrictive time, I'm also reminded of that quote that I said recently from William Schufeld and Dr. Ted Naiman's book about how, as far as like finding a maintenance diet you're only going to be able to effortlessly maintain a dietary change if you enjoy the process that got you there. Yes. And I think that is so huge. And it's like you said, Jen, like it was effortless and it was easy. And I mean, this will probably be a little bit controversial, but historically, I think I definitely lost too much weight doing intermittent fasting. And I think part of that might be because I literally was following an intermittent fasting coupled with a whole foods dietary approach that worked so well for my body that it really just made it so effortless to lose weight. Like, cause I never felt restricted. I never felt hungry during the fast. Like it was so easy. And I think that's where actually like a danger could come in because I think it was so easy and I was supporting my body nutritionally that I probably lost a little bit too much weight compared to, I think people can be doing, you know, an intermittent fasting protocol. And for some reason, it's just not working with their body. And if it doesn't feel easy, even if they're taking in adequate calories, even if they're doing quote, all the right things, if it doesn't feel easy, if they are feeling constantly restricted, it's just not, our bodies just can't do that long-term. Like it's just not maintainable. And here's the thing I also want to point out about that period of my life. I was eating really differently than how I had been eating. Like when I first you know, started intermittent fasting, I was eating the standard American diet. I was eating a lot of fast food. I was doing the drive through. I was eating, you know, processed foods. And so when I switched and gave up those ultra processed foods and shortened my window, my body was probably like, hallelujah, because finally I was putting in adequate nutrients for the first time. And that's probably why it felt so good because my body was thrilled. I was eating lots of vegetables, beans, I mean, potatoes, butter and sour cream, berries with heavy cream. And so I was getting so many more nutrients that my body was probably just thrilled. 
and, and able to tap into fat stores. And I felt satisfied. It was really just a great period of time. Yeah. So, so I think long, long story short, really Sarah, there's not one right or wrong answer here. You know, what approach resonates with you? If you're going to go more intense, stricter, do you have like an end point in mind for that? So you don't worry about overdoing it. Are you enjoying the process? I don't think there's one right or wrong answer. I think it's just, it's nice to know that you can always try things and you can always change things up. So I think that's the most freeing aspect of it all. Yep. Like you can always try a different fasting window and you can always try a shorter fast or a longer fast. You know, it's not like you have to like pick one and stick to it. You don't, right? You can alternate it, you know? You can always try something new. Yep, you sure can. You can even do a hybrid approach where you have down day, up day, eating window, down day, up day, eating window. You know, that would be like, you know, three days kind of a pattern. Just really whatever feels right to you and is giving you the results and that you feel good doing. Exactly. Hi, friends. I'm about to tell you how to get three pounds of organic chicken thighs, two pounds of grass-fed, grass-finished ground beef, or one pound of premium grass-fed, grass-finished steak tips, all for free, plus $20 off. That's right. We're talking pounds of meat for free, plus $20 off. Friends, I love meat and seafood. My favorite way to get it is ButcherBox. It has been for years, and it's one of those things where I just sort of become more and more obsessed the more I use it. Especially with all the greenwashing that's going on today with meat and seafood, there's a lack of transparency, it can be hard to know what you're actually getting, and it can be expensive. ButcherBox addresses all of that. By directly partnering with farmers and fishermen, ButcherBox cuts out the middleman of the grocery store and directly delivers delicious meat and seafood straight to your door, and they have the highest standards. Their salmon, for example, is wild-caught, their beef is 100% grass-fed and 100% grass-finished, their chicken is free-range and organic, and it all tastes delicious. I love their chicken, love their meat, love their seafood. They have amazing scallops as well. And you can really find the collection of food that you want that works for you and your family. They have curated boxes, so you can get exactly what you want as fresh as possible because yes, meat and seafood that is immediately frozen is fresher than meat that is waiting out and never frozen. That's because it's frozen at its peak of freshness. It's funny because people kind of think it would be the opposite. Like, oh, I need never frozen meat and seafood. No, 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 no. You want frozen. You want meat and seafood that was immediately frozen and then shipped to you, which is what ButcherBox does. I eat a lot of steak at restaurants. ButcherBox's fillets are divine, way better than anything I would get at a restaurant. Their other cuts are amazing as well. With their seafood, I know I can trust them that I'm actually getting what they say because yes, there is a lot of scams in the seafood industry and their chicken also tastes amazing. It's free range and organic and tastes delicious. With ButcherBox, you don't have to worry about what's for dinner and ButcherBox has an incredible offer for our audience. You can have your choice of a weeknight meal essential for free in every order for a whole year. Just go to butcherbox.com slash ifpodcast and use ifpodcast to choose either three pounds of organic chicken thighs, two pounds of grass-fed, grass-finished ground beef, or one pound of grass-fed, grass-finished premium steak tips plus $20 off. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash ifpodcast and use code ifpodcast 
to choose your free offer and get that $20 off. Butcherbox.com slash ifpodcast with code ifpodcast. I will put all this information in the show notes. All right, let's go on to our next question. This is from Galen, and the subject is the dreaded sugar question. Galen says, a big hello and thank you for your always amazing podcast and books. Sorry, I have to use the S word, but I need to ask. On the rare occasion I am eating birthday cake or something with sugar in my window, is there any, quote, better time to have it in the eating window? Earlier, later, after a protein? Is there any evidence as to when to ease the insulin spike to the body or to be absorbed more readily? Many thanks, Galen. All right. So this is a great question from Galen. And it speaks to a topic that I think (laughs) is pretty misunderstood, and that is the concept of sugar and insulin and blood sugar and all of these things. I think for the person following a standard American diet where it's a mixed macronutrients, you know, we have fats, we have carbs, we have all the things... Typically in that context, adding in sugar is probably going to have not so good effects (laughs) just in, you know, how your body is processing, you know, the insulin reaction, your blood sugar levels, things like that, because adding in, you know, this refined form of, of sugar is going to spike insulin, not the best. The reason I think it's complicated is there's a new book out called Mastering Diabetes, the Revolutionary Method to Reverse Insulin Resistance Permanently in Type 1, Type 1.5, Type 2, Prediabetes, and Gestational Diabetes. It's by Cyrus Kambada and Robbie Barbaro. I hope I'm saying their names right, but they've been making the podcast rounds. They've been on like all the shows recently. How are you familiar with this book, Jen? I am not. So they basically reversed their insulin resistance and have seen spectacular management of their type 1 diabetes on basically a extremely low-fat, high-fruit <laughs> diet. What's the name of the book again? Mastering Diabetes. Okay. As soon as you said that, at first I was like, no, I haven't. But then the fact that when you said type 1 diabetes, this is related to type 1? The book speaks to all types, but they're type 1. So yeah, actually, now that you said that, I have heard of it. Someone was talking about it in one of my Facebook groups this past week. The name and the what it was about just connected together. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. I'm actually dying to get them on my podcast because I actually really, really agree with... I haven't read the book yet, but I've listened to a lot of interviews with them and their ideas and their approach really resonates with me. And I really, really like their perspective, which... They also actually were on Paul Saladino's carnivore podcast. So that was a really, really fascinating discussion where they were debating very low-carb carnivore diets for insulin resistance compared to, you know, basically a fruititarian diet for the same thing. And the takeaway that I've seen from it and what I find refreshing that they seem to understand is that insulin and blood sugar can be regulated on two very extreme approaches that are complete opposites. And that's something I've been saying, like, I 
keep saying this. I'm like friends and like, you know, low fat or low carb. Well, it's like, you know, they did that diet at the Duke. I can't remember what they called it, but it was out of Duke University where people were eating like a ton of white rice, but very, very low fat. Well, the Kempner diet is basically all white rice and like sugar. Yeah. I think that's this one coming out. Was it out of Duke University? Kempner's work is probably what first brought to light the idea that you could completely manage diabetes on a basically sugar diet. If you have no fat, that's the thing. Like, it's really, really fascinating. The debate that's going on, and I just finished up their episode on Rich Roll, which obviously Rich Roll is, you know, very pro-vegan. So there wasn't quite as much of the nuance in that conversation because they were all in the same, you know, same camp. But the nuance when they were on Paul Saladino's podcast was very fascinating because obviously Paul is the complete opposite. And what they were debating was what is insulin resistance really? Because some people will say actually that very low carb diets, ketogenic diets, that these things actually create insulin resistance because the body's just basically not using insulin because you're not taking in carbs. And so if you are exposed to carbs, you body can't really handle it adequately with insulin compared to the flip side where a low fat diet where fat is not even playing a factor and it's all just carbs that actually can create insulin sensitivity because the insulin actually becomes very effective and sensitive to the carbohydrate intake. And I'm not like just making this up. Like they actually, I mean, they're managing their type one diabetes with way less insulin on this plan. And they are doing so with a lot of people. The reason I'm bringing all this up is that the question, there's like this dreaded sugar question. So people think like, you know, sugar and insulin, how does it relate? I just think it's so complicated because like on the one hand, it's like, if you do follow actually an approach where it's in a different context, the answer is completely different, but on a mixed macronutrient type lifestyle, which I'm, which is like Galen's question. Yeah. Cause birthday cake is fat and sugar. I mean, it's fat and carbs together. The other thing is like, you would have to be, you know, the reason I'm trying to bring broader context to this is like, so say somebody's follow, I mean, I don't know if Galen's following a low carb diet, but I kind of get the vibe that he might be. Or she, Galen might be a she. I think I knew a female Galen. I don't know. So Galen. (laughs) Sorry, Galen. Because it's a dreaded sugar question. I am thinking maybe... Galen might be coming from a low-carb perspective. So that's why I think this context is so important because I think if you are on a low-carb diet, and that's why I gave all that background with that new book, which I really want to get them on my podcast. If you're on a low-carb diet and you want to have, you know, you want to bring in the sugar, it's hard because the the birthday cake is automatically going to be high fat. It's it's like if you're already low-carb to minimize, I think, the metabolic issues, you would really want to have that meal actually in the context of a lower-fat meal if you want to have like a carb moment. But that's not the situation because the situation is where he or she is probably wanting to splurge with something where it's going to be in a mixed macronutrients situation. So as far as the better time to have it, that is also all over the board because often people will say, Pairing protein, you know, with sugar is better because it'll like slow the absorption. People might say, you know, with fiber will slow the absorption, but then also people will say different carbs, you know, don't have simple carbs because they spike blood sugar. Then people will say have complex carbs because they're slower digesting, but like literally people respond all different ways. And so my takeaway to this is that there's basically two approaches you can do. If it's like, you're going to have something that's high in sugar and that you're not normally having sugar in your diet normally, 
you can either just chalk it up to like, this is the occasion. This is not going to be that great for me, but I'm just going to go with it. Or if you want to try to make it quote healthier, if there's any way you can do it in a more, a lower fat context, that's better. I think obviously maintaining your fasting window around it will be great. There's no one right answer though. Like as far as like, is there evidence as to when to have the sugar to ease the insulin spike in the body? It depends on so many things. Most importantly, your body at this moment and how your insulin is already functioning because it's not like we all show up with a blank slate and we're all going to react the same way to a meal. It's based on where our body is right then and there and how our insulin production is going. So it's not like any one person's going to respond the same way. So for example, like this fruititarian type ish diet that they're prescribing for diabetes. Obviously, if you're like super high fat, super low carb one day, and then you jump into this for your next meal, I mean, that that one meal is probably going to be like, I don't want to say it's going to wreck you, but it, it's going to be like completely different effect compared to if you've been following this diet for a while and then you have that meal. So Jen, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think the fact that it's so very individual is very important. I've talked about this before, and I also have it featured in my second book, Feast Without Fear. What really blew my mind is when I watched the video by Dr. Aaron Segal called What is the Best Diet for Humans? If everyone has not watched that yet, or if anyone has not watched it, Google it now, go to YouTube, watch the video, What is the Best Diet for Humans? Dr. Aaron, E-R-A-N, Segal. And it's based on research that shows that we all have actually a personalized glycemic response to foods. For me, I know how my body responds to birthday cake. If I opened my window with birthday cake, it would crash my blood sugar and I would feel terrible. So for me, having birthday cake or any kind of cake or a cookie or anything like that to open my window would be a disaster. For me, I know I feel much better if I have something like that after a meal that has been like a a balanced meal. Then I could get away with when I don't want to say get away with, then I could eat birthday cake and not have the crash that I would have if I had it early. So for me, that's my truth. I can't open my window with something that's highly refined and sugary and then feel great afterwards. But they actually found with their research that there are some people, maybe the birthday cake would not spike their blood sugar. And I know that sounds ridiculous because we've been taught that the glycemic index is like set in stone and that everyone has the same glycemic reaction to every food, but that's not what they found. So if you haven't watched the video, don't take my word for it. Watch it yourself. It will blow your mind and it will show you that you can learn to listen to your body and find the truth of what works for you without me having to tell you when to eat that birthday cake. Yeah, exactly. And also what works for you at this point in time, and it might not be the same as what worked for you or what will work for you. Well, that's true because our responses are governed by, you know, genetics play a role, but also your gut microbiome plays a role. So if your gut microbiome changes over time, you can expect that your response to foods may change over time as well. So you're not going to be the same every day for the rest of your life. Excellent point. I don't think I'll ever be the kind of person that does really well to open my window with cake. I know how my body feels. And I remember being a child and I wasn't really a sweet eater because when I was a kid, I was tiny. I was scrawny. I was the, the, you know, the scrawniest kid in every bunch. But I remember if I ate something super sugary, just like this cake, the same thing would happen then. So I learned that's not how I feel good, even as a kid. Yeah. And like also to that point, I mean... 
remember I was eating like all the fruit and like that was like completely fine. Now I keep trying to bring back fruit and I keep <laughs> such an epic fail, Jen, but I'm going to get back to it. But in any case, I think that's pretty telling. What's fruit, what is fruit doing for you now when you try to eat it? I get like ravenous. Whereas before it was like completely filling me up and like I wasn't even, I didn't feel like blood sugar swings. Like, I mean, it was like working so well. It was like high protein, high fruit. And now whenever I try to bring back the fruit. You get really hungry. Mm-hmm. So I'm just trying to figure out the way to, because I really want to bring it back. It's kind of funny. I was listening to the Rich Roll interview and Rich was saying how like only fruititarians or people who are like obsessed with fruit, like that they just are so obsessed with fruit. Like it like makes them so happy. And I was like, yeah, that's how I was with pineapple. Because remember me and pineapple? I do. I do. Like I was like, there's something there because I never really had that like complete obsession with like just feeling like this radiant goodness from like eating, except for when I was doing the high fruit stuff. Yeah. I've never been high fruit. And that's interesting. People, you know, pay attention to when I post my dinner or if I talk about what I'm eating. And sometimes people will say, do you eat fruit? Where's the fruit? I'm like, I really don't eat a lot of fruit. You know, berry season, I'll pull out the strawberries, I'll pull out the blackberries, but you know, I've never been somebody who wanted to eat a lot of fruit. I always thought it was just me though. But then when Rich said that, he was like, he's like, what is it about fruit people? And like, they're, they're like glowing obsession. Except for dates. I love dates. I love dates. Yeah. I now eat dates as my, my dessert. That's my dessert of choice. Yum. So in any case, dying, I've got to get them on my podcast. Yeah. That's fascinating. But yes, as soon as you mentioned that the topic of the book, I realized I had heard of it. The name just didn't ring a bell. What's the name of it again? I keep forgetting the name. Mastering Diabetes. And it just became a New York Times bestseller, I think, as well. Awesome. I really, like I said, I appreciate their perspective because they do acknowledge that, oh, like low carb does work as well (laughs) because of certain mechanisms. Basically, they're just like, what dietary approach do you want to, you know, stick to? Great point. Because in either case, it's like you can't really deviate, you know? I also do believe that there are people that one will work better than the other for that person. Like I do believe, like if you told me most people are either going to do well on low carb or low fat, I would believe you. Like I, I think that like for me, I did great on low fat back in those days and I never did well on low carb. So I never lost any weight on low carb. I think my body preferred low fat, whereas there are some bodies that prefer low carb. Well, it's really fascinating is I have obviously done both and I did get my inside tracker genetic test back and it said I would do well on either low carb or low fat. Oh, that's fascinating. But what wrecks me is if I can't, I mean, it didn't say this in the genetic test, but for me personally, like when I combine them, even if it's like calorie restricted, you know, even if it's like not overeating, having them together, like mixed macros just is not farewell for my body. That's so interesting. See, my DNA analysis said that I would do better with a lower fat, more carbs, but that saturated fats are okay for me. So that makes sense when you look at it, you know, when I was doing that period of time where I was eating, you know, a baked potato with butter. Well, that's high carb, but it also has saturated fat, which my body does better with. I mean, I know the science is in its infancy, but the results really did show what I've found to be true for me. Whereas, you know, there's other types of fats, you know, the mufas and poofas <laughs> were a no for me. And so, you know, I shouldn't use all the olive oil in the world, for example. It's just fascinating how different we are. And, you know, 
we just can't say everyone could either do this or that because really maybe you would be better on this side versus that side. At least that's the way my body has been. That's why I just wish there were more people that realize this. Like, like it just drives me crazy when people are like low carb for everybody or low fat for everybody. Right. Right. No, maybe not. <laughs> no, it's, it's really hard to have any one size fits all dietary recommendations, but, but you know, when it feels right, you know, that it feels good. So we have a question from another Sarah, Sarah with an H. The other Sarah did not have an H. Sarah says, hi, ladies. First off, I adore both of you. Okay. I need some help slash troubleshooting. Thanks in advance. I've been fasting for about 2.5 months. Everything, well, almost everything is going great. Clean fast, usually 20 to 22 hours, never less than 18. Typical eating window is 4 to 6 p.m. I eat relatively healthy, but do not deny carbs, sugar, etc. I found that intense cardio, Peloton, in the morning makes my fast much easier. I assume because the workouts get me more quickly and deeply into ketosis. The one area of my life that seems to be incompatible with fasting is tennis. I am dragging and feeling hungry on the court. I feel like I have three rather unappealing options. Number one, eat before tennis, which would be around hour 12 to 14. Two, do intense cardio before tennis, eek. (laughs) Or three, possibly eat keto on nights before tennis matches. Do you guys have any thoughts or any other suggestions? Thank you. Yeah, I love this question, Sarah. And I love that you have noticed the connection between doing the intense cardio and your fast being easier because I think your hypothesis is correct. You're getting more deeply into ketosis. So keep that in mind. And I actually think I would probably, if it were me, experiment with doing a little Peloton before going to play tennis. I think I would try that. Just do a little little bit of that until you start feeling great and then see what happens with the tennis. I mean, you could really experiment with all of them, all the options you gave, but I would probably try that first. What do you think, Melanie? So you're doing her number two, which is do intense cardio before tennis? Yeah, her number two. But she doesn't seem to like that idea. But she said eek. But the thing is, is that she has found that the intense cardio helps her feel great. I would like to play tennis feeling great. So if I know that the Peloton is going to make me feel great, I feel like I would try that. And then maybe it's too much. Then you realize it is too much, and then you can choose one of those other things. I feel like I would not eat right before tennis, though. I think that would make me sick. It's so funny. People will say that a lot in questions we get, how you know they can only do this activity if they eat before. And I'm like, oh, I'm like the complete opposite. I mean, that's just me. Like, I could not, yeah. If I ate something and then tried to do a bunch of physical activity. Unless it was just fruit. That's the difference for me. If it was fruit. Not like a banana, which is starchy, but like melon or berries. Yeah. It's so funny. First of all, I love this question from Sarah because I love how she has this, you know, thing she's trying to tackle and she provided very interesting like options. Like she clearly has thought this through. She's realized, you know, eating before the second one is doing some sort of like intense activity to like boost her into that state, which I do think is a viable way to go. It doesn't have to be as long, right? Just, you know. Yeah. Which reminds me of something which I'm going to circle around back to. I actually really liked three, (laughs) which was she was saying, you know, eat keto the night before the matches. So then she's already, you know, she's still in this fat burning state. I thought that was a really cool option to play around with. I guess the problem is she says that all these are unappealing to her. And I'm, I'm wondering why they're all unappealing. So her option number one about eating before, I guess she just, 
Is the unappealing aspect because she wants to be fasting more? Because if she feels fine doing it, I mean, then maybe that's the option to go with. If the only reason that one is unappealing is because she wants to be having a longer fast, I would say just, I mean, if that's what feels best though in your body, then just have a shorter fast the day that you play tennis. If she feels great playing tennis after eating, that would be the only caveat. Yeah, that is that is the only caveat. I really feel like I would not. That's just me. But again, we're all different. That's another option you could try. You could try rather than eating, I don't know what you're eating before, but you could try, like I just said, like fruit or something before. You know, there might be something that you could have before that wouldn't make you feel sluggish, but would also be energetic. I don't know. I liked three the most because I thought it's like you're, you're tweaking with what you're eating to make that window work for you the next day. Something I was thinking about though was I was listening to a podcast with somebody, I think he has an online website called Veep or something. Like, I'm not sure. It was fascinating. And I really want to get him on my podcast as well. But he was saying at the end, it was on Seamland and Seamland asked him at the end, like, what was the one thing that he wished he had adopted sooner in his life? And he said, 60 seconds of complete full out intensity can really deplete like your glycogen. It can deplete your energy. So he was saying that what he does now is he splits that up into 20 seconds, three times per day. And it's not that hard, but he says that the return on investment that you would have over years, if for three times each day for 20 seconds, if you just did something that was literally to your max intensity for 20 seconds, three times per day, that that could have radical changes on your energy metabolism and your body and your health. And so the reason I was applying it to this question was, you know, maybe she could try doing like before the tennis, maybe it doesn't even have to be like cardio. Cause I think cardio intense cardio is often like not quite max intensity for like a longer period of time. Maybe all you would have to do. So this would be my, my fourth suggestion. You might could just do like all out max intensity for like 60 seconds. And that might be all you need. Option two, but just not, you don't have to do it for like an hour. Yeah. Cause I think she's thinking like, I got to do cardio for an hour and then do it, but you might be able to hack it and just do like 30 seconds or 60 seconds of like, you know, jumping and that might be all you need or running. So, yep. I think we have time for one more question. Sure. All right. So our next question is from Elizabeth and the subject is water and essential oil during the fast. I just listened to episode four about insulin, et cetera. The sweetener study was interesting and made sense. So my question is, can I put, or what do you think about me putting essential oil, such as lemon, orange, and lime in my water? They're not sweetened. They're just therapeutic grade essential oil. It gives me some flavor to my water. I'm a 51 year old, five foot eight, 165 pound woman doing the 16, eight fast. Thanks for the podcast. All right. So great question from Elizabeth. And so essential oils, I will refer listeners. I had an amazing, amazing interview with Dr. Eric Zelensky. He wrote one of like one of the most popular books on essential oils out there. He's like one of the go-to essential oils guys. The show notes are at melanieavalon.com slash essential oils. So if you want to learn more about essential oils and the science and the health benefits, definitely check that out. I will say you have to be careful with putting essential oils in water and ingesting them because essential oils are actually very, very powerful, potentially powerful substances. They're basically the concentrated, almost medicinal benefits of plants. So you want to be careful that you're using, you know, food grade essential oils and you're not putting in 
too much that would be having, you know, problems that could potentially, you know, hurt your digestion or anything like that. So definitely be careful with that. We do talk about making like, you know, peppermint spray water with with peppermint essential oil. And people do use that as like a breath freshener during the fast. But as far as putting the actual oils into water, what are your thoughts on that, Jen? One thing you do have to consider is the essential oil. Is it literally just the essential oil or does it have a carrier oil in it? Because if it is made with a carrier oil, then there's going to be actually be like fat in that oil compared to if it's just like the constituent plant chemicals that is slightly different. What are your thoughts on essential oils in water, Jen? Well, to me, it's the flavor. You know, you you taste the lemon, you taste the orange, you taste the lime, and your brain says, ooh, I'm having lemon, I'm having orange, I'm having lime. So for the clean fast, I recommend not introducing any flavors. You know, you wouldn't want to have flavored sparkling water either, even though that's zero calories. Like don't have lemon San Pellegrino. You want to just be the plain and unflavored. You know, our bodies do have responses that occur when they think we're having food. We may have an insulin response. We may have a salivary response, which lets our bodies know, you know, like like sour flavors give us that salivary response, such as the lemon and the lime. Orange is going to have like a, a more sweet kind of a flavor. Even though it's technically not sweetened, your brain still tastes that citrus and thinks you're having fruit. So I recommend for a clean fast that you don't add any flavors to your water at all. You want to drink water flavored water, stick to that. You know, as far as the peppermint that Melanie talked about, a little bit of peppermint for breath freshening is different than let's say you were putting it in water and drinking it as a water enhancer. The duration goes on and on and on when you're flavoring your water because you're drinking that beverage over a long period of time. So I would recommend don't add anything to your water for flavor stick to plain. And really it's based on experience with people in the, in the groups. And, you know, we've got 350,000 members in these groups now, and we've heard a lot of people talk about what makes the fast easier. And once they go to plain water, plain tea, black coffee, once we start leaving out all those other things that, you know, we want to tickle our taste buds and have, you know, delicious flavored things. Once we leave those things out, it changes how we experience fasting. So I'm sorry, but I would not recommend flavoring your water in any way. Alrighty. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. So a few things for listeners before we go. If you'd like to submit your own questions for the podcast, you can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. We are a Himalaya-partnered show. And if you follow us in the Himalaya app, you'll get early access to our podcast 24 hours in advance. So definitely check that out. You can also check out ifpodcast.com slash stuff we like for all of these stuff that we like. You can follow us on Instagram. We are ifpodcast. I am Melanie Avalon. Jen is Jen Stevens. And you can follow us on Twitter. We are the ifpod. All right. Anything from you, Jen, before we go? Nope. Another great episode. I say that every time. All right. Well, I will talk to you next week. I hope it's colder next week. It's supposed to be rainier and then warmer. Like it's going to be rainy, rainy, rainy. I'm like so tired of the rainy. Then it's going to be, I think, a little bit warmer after that. But I'm still not seeing those spring temperatures that I'm looking for. Georgia usually is a little warmer early on and we're having a not so warm February into March. Well, it's not not February anymore. Now it's March. February went by so fast. Happy March. Happy March, everybody. All right. I'll talk to you next week. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.
Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember that everything discussed on the show is not medical advice. We're not doctors. You can also check out our other podcasts, Intermittent Fasting Stories and the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Theme music was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.